0: This is Ideas, and I'm David Cayley with the second program in our series on community and its counterfeits.
1: Why do we have city neighborhoods today where walking on the street may result in your being shot in the head and the largest and best-trained police forces we've ever had? Why is that? The idea we have had that there are criminal justice professionals, and they can fix our society, fix our communities so that we'll be safe, has been the principal cause of our lack of safety. Because we have given away our community and its capacity and responsibility on the grounds that when something's wrong in it, they will fix it. And the result is we are powerless and in an absolutely unsafe community and a powerful, powerful police force where the local commander will tell you, I can't do anymore.
0: John McKnight directs the program in community studies at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. He has devoted a career of nearly 40 years to understanding how communities work, and he has concluded that as communities grow richer in social services, they often grow poorer in competence and solidarity. Finally, they reach the epitome of futility he has just described. Expensive, highly trained, lavishly equipped professionals are forced to admit their impotence in front of a demoralized and equally impotent citizenry. This program is about the experiences that led John McKnight to that conclusion. And it's about the ways in which he thinks communities can renew themselves now that industries are shrinking, jobs are scarce, and governments can no longer afford the services on which neighborhoods have become dependent. Later in the hour, you'll also hear from Jackie Reed, who represents a neighborhood organization on Chicago's west side, where John McKnight has worked for many years. Community and its Counterfeits is a three-part series based on interviews I recorded with John McKnight over a period of several days in June 1993 at his home in Evanston. The present program begins in Chicago in
2: 1956. Come on Baby, do you wanna go back to the liberalized city? Sweet home, Chicago.
0: After college at Northwestern and a stint in the Navy, John McKnight is working for the Chicago Commission on Human Relations.
2: Back to the liberalized city. Sweet home, Chicago.
1: The city of Chicago created the first municipal civil rights organization in the United States. And so I applied there, and I got a job. That was a very important experience for me because I had two kinds of uh, tasks. The first was to try to do something about the discrimination of hospitals that pretty systematically uh, discriminated against uh, black patients. They weren't patients because they couldn't get in. so black people who who were seeking medical care. And the other, which I think was much more formative, was that I was sent out into... uh, Neighborhoods in Chicago, which is a real experience for a kid raised in a small town Ohio and told to uh, try to create uh, neighborhood organizations in some neighborhoods where racial transition was taking place, where white people were leaving and black people were moving in. Mm-hmm. Every weekend, you know, as black people would move in, Large masses of white people would gather and jeer and throw stones in their windows and often try to burn the house down. And I was often assigned to be inside the house. There were blocks that were changing racially where I was organizing in the half a year. It would be all white in January and it would be all black in July. And it was, in significant part, the result of the flight of black folks from the South because of the collapse of the agricultural economy and the industrial economy it was here. And people were coming to Chicago every day from the South. And they had to have some place to live and the pressure, building, building, and building within the black neighborhoods. And they had to give some place. And it gave at the edge. And There were speculators who were involved in what was called blockbusting. And they just had developed a their own method for churning a neighborhood they called they would frighten the white people to sell the houses low and then they would sell it for twice the price to the black people it was just devastating economically socially and the black folks who were buying these buildings for twice what they were worth had to overcrowd them it was just a terrible terrible thing As we experimented with organizing, I learned that there was a person in Chicago who was developing a way of really creating a powerful organization, and that was a man named Saul Alinsky. At the heart of of his organizing technique was the realization that you were dealing with people whose life experience was, generally speaking, to have lost. And that you couldn't organize folks whose experience was a powerlessness and defeat unless some way you could engage them in the belief that as small as they may have thought they were, (laughs) as weak as they might have thought they were, that they had a gift. I remember going one evening with one of Alinsky's best organizers. This was a a group of people on a block in a lower-income neighborhood. And so people had come together that evening in one of their homes on the block. And the organizer was going to talk with them. So we went to the home, and there were maybe 30 people crowded into this living room. And the organizer sits down. All the people introduce themselves. And then the organizer says, well, uh, what's going on around here? And uh, people began to talk about all the problems, right? They began to talk about how the city wasn't picking up the garbage, how they needed stop signs, but they didn't have any stop signs, about how there were rats running up and down the alleys, that kind of thing. And this went on for maybe about a half hour. And uh, then the organizer finally says, well, what have you done about that? And there was a silence. And the organizer turned to me and said, John, let's get out of here. I can't waste my time with these people. They're on their back. They're a bunch of crybabies. Listen, when you folks are ready to stand up and act like citizens, you give a call. And we walked out the door and left. <laughs> and so that's a, an example of a kind of method that provokes people into recognizing they are citizens. John
0: McKnight worked for the Chicago Commission on Human Relations during the heyday of Alinsky-style organizing. McKnight's organization and Alinsky's had differences, but McKnight admired Alinsky's genius in adapting the techniques of labor organizing to neighborhood and consumer issues. Alinsky also had a gift for brash and imaginative tactics which by the end of the 60s had made him something of a legend throughout North America. In Chicago, on one occasion, citizens protested the decaying state of their neighborhood by releasing rats in the mayor's office. For John McKnight, it was an unforgettable experience of how people can gain confidence when power is demystified and exposed.
1: There is something that is really magnificent when you see a middle-aged Italian-American lady who has always been humble, putting a rat on the mayor's desk. It's a transformative experience for her and the mayor. When folks learn that behind that institution is Charlie, the mayor, or Sam, the corporation president, and they see him and they confront him, It's uh, a little like the Wizard of Oz, you know. (laughs) When Dorothy and her troop got to the wizard's palace and were inside, the little dog, Toto, pulled the the curtain away behind which the wizard was manipulating all the levers to make it look like he was a great and fearsome person.
0: John McKnight worked as an organizer in Chicago until 1960, when he moved to the American Civil Liberties Union as the director of its Illinois section. Then, in 1963, he was recruited by the Kennedy administration's Equal Employment Opportunity Office as one of a group of frontline workers with a mandate to desegregate companies doing business with the federal government. In the later 60s, he directed the Midwestern Office of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. During this period, McKnight gained a first-hand acquaintance with massive programs of planned change, like the federal government's War on Poverty. And he came to see clearly the shadow such programs cast on local
1: communities. The result of that was that into the neighborhoods came more and more service professionals. And they came with their White coats and their clipboards, right? <laughs> and and did need surveys and uh, brought the trappings of technical authority and special expert knowledge. The culture developed in which the multi service center became the place where things got done, where there were real experts, lots of money. It was a tremendous magnet for the redirection. Of local folks' understanding of where the resources were, where the real knowledge was, where things could really be done that would change your life. And it made organizing much, much harder. And every organizer knows it. That's why when Saul Olinsky would say social worker, sometimes he would spit afterwards. <laughs> Every organizer, I think, comes to see that there is this competition. Alinsky just despised social workers, right? <laughs> and this I think he he intuitively and, and, and uh, that I'm sure explicitly understood that there's a competition here as to what is the meaning of your life? Who are you? Are you a client or are you a citizen? And the social worker is out looking for clients and making clients and needs clients. And the organizer is out looking for citizens. And you can't make a citizen. You can allow a citizen, but you can make a client.
0: The making of clients has a number of related effects which concern John McKnight. Clienthood suppresses citizenship. It focuses attention on the needs of the individual, other than the physical, social, and political structure of the environment. And it induces dependency, both on professionals and on precarious sources of public money, which may later dry up. This, in fact, is what has happened in Chicago. Once the brawny giant of American industrial cities, poet Carl Sandburg's legendary City of the Big Shoulders, Chicago, in the last 20-odd years, has undergone an extreme form of the deindustrialization
1: that has affected many older North American cities. The stockyards, the great Chicago stockyards, there hasn't been a cow there in 30 years. It's gone. It's gone a generation. We have no steel mill in the city of Chicago that's producing any significant amount of steel. The automobile factories are almost all gone. The great international harvester corporation that was so much the center of a lot of Chicago's agricultural industrial ascendance, doesn't exist anymore. It went bankrupt and closed down. There is no international harvester. It was the biggest farm equipment manufacturing company in the world. It doesn't exist.
0: This change in Chicago's economic fortunes has had profound implications for the Alinsky-style organizing on which John McKnight cut his teeth as a young neighborhood organizer in the 50s. Saul Alinsky and his co-workers had organized people to demand their rights as consumers. They took it for granted that the civic and commercial institutions on whom the demands were made could
1: actually deliver. But this assumption, McKnight says, no longer holds. Now in the neighborhood, you might march on City Hall, but the problem is that in City Hall, the till is empty. The mayor can't do anything for you. He has nothing to respond with. You can't march on and demand your, your consumption rights with the, with the corporations, the banks, because they've moved out. They aren't there. Who are you gonna march on? We have the west side of Chicago, an area of 600,000 people without one bank. No chartered bank, they're all gone. Been gone for 20 years. I think maybe the last one might have closed 20 years ago. Who are you gonna march on about the school? School, you are not educating my children. Well, where are they? Will we look in Philadelphia, Detroit, Cleveland, Chicago, where are they educating children? Where can we demand our superintendent go to find out how to educate our children? So we have business institutions who are no longer there, government institutions where the cupboard is bare, and educational institutions that are intellectually threadbare, haven't got the foggiest idea how to educate children. On what police station do you march to get the police system to do something about crime in your neighborhood. I don't think there's anybody in a neighborhood in Chicago that thinks that they could hold a pistol to the head of the local district commander and get that commander to do what is necessary to deal with crime because I think they understand he can't. He doesn't know. So that we're in a world, in the neighborhoods, in the older neighborhoods and cities, of just wholesale institutional abandonment. So the idea that I am going to develop locally the power to confront institutions, to give me a just share of their goods and services, is much, much less useful than it used to be. Faith that a flourishing community can be restored from the outside
0: has died hard. Industry has vanished. The well-to-do have moved to the suburbs and city governments have grown steadily poorer, but people have naturally clung to the hope that prosperity will return. John McKnight likens this expectation to the hope that animated the so-called cargo cults observed by anthropologists
1: in the South Pacific. In New Guinea, during the uh, Second World War, the Allied troops came and landed on the mountaintops because the Japanese had taken over the coastal towns in New Guinea. All the middle was, had no towns. Aboriginal people there. And so the Allies parachuted in guerrillas who then were to go down and attack from behind in guerrilla actions, the Japanese bases. So the guerrillas landed there on the tops of the mountains and every week cargo planes would come and they would fly over the mountains and drop their cargo for the troops to support them. And of course the native people were amazed by this. They hadn't seen airplanes. All of these wonderful things came out of the air. And so around the area, many of these people abandoned their towns and their ways and they came and they lived on the edge of the runways and they became sort of dependencies of these landing strip people. And then all of a sudden, the war was over, and the troops left, and the cargo planes stopped coming. And there they were, a people dependent upon this outside system and its stuff. And so they began to build mock airplanes on the ground thinking that if they would build these airplanes, it would draw the the cargo planes in like uh, decoy ducks. And they worshiped at the shrine of these airplanes and developed a whole religion called the cargo cult. And I think after time, it didn't work. And they decided that probably they had to go back to their little village and start planting yams. And remember once again how a community makes a life out of the resources that it has in the place where it is. And that's what we were facing in our neighborhoods. But in the face of the abandonment, for a while, a lot of folks decided that what they were going to do was to try to get a Ford plant to come in. Maybe a cargo plane would come (laughs) and drop a Ford plant in the neighborhood. So there's these... (laughs) Enterprise zones and other kinds of notions about how we might be able to draw them back, and we've tried that with, with minimal success. There, uh, there is still to be the first Ford plant dropped in a urban neighborhood in the United States. But as people have come to realize that that these ways of trying to draw that big system back, those abandoning institutions back, is not working then they, they come to the third recognition, and that is whatever will happen here will happen because of us. And that means a new call to their capacity through association to understand what the assets are that they have, or what potential they have for investment, what potential they have for productivity, what creativity they can assemble, initiate, and that the heart of their possibility is there with them in that place. Now, we don't have much experience in terms of knowing how a neighborhood that has become dependent on big institutions, right, as most did, became dependent on the steel mills and the and the hospitals and the big city schools, as they, as they become abandoned, just the way the cargo planes stopped. We don't have a lot of experience with how you reinvent community. And by that, we mean a place populated not with consumers, but with people who are citizens with the capacity to produce.
0: John McKnight believes that many communities are now beginning to face the fact that the cargo planes aren't coming. He says that at this point, experience is limited, and nobody can say definitively what an ambitious phrase like the reinvention of community might mean. But experience is not lacking altogether. In fact, John McKnight has been involved with neighborhood organizations on the west side of Chicago, which have been gradually moving toward self-reliance for many years it
1: began with an effort to desegregate the local hospital. The neighborhood organization, an Alinsky kind of organization, set as its agenda using power methods to force that hospital to serve the local people. And they did that. They negotiated, they picketed the hospital. They went out to the president of the hospital's suburban neighborhood and distributed flyers to all of his neighbors saying that uh, he was running a racist institution all kinds of things like that, and the hospital responded to that pressure and began to employ black people, began to appoint uh, doctors who were serving black people, began to hire black nurses and it put some black people on the board. And after about three, four years, the hospital was serving the local population in a fairly good way. So. At the annual meeting of the neighborhood organization where they were making reports on each of their task forces and how they'd done on the goals, the hospital task force that had been at the forefront of putting the pressure on this hospital to change it made a report and told about how the hospital had really changed, how many people from the neighborhood were being served, were being employed, the doctors who they were serving, everything was now in good shape. And everybody applauded, and this was a very clear, manifest victory. And there was an old lady at that meeting, and I was there at the meeting. <laughs> uh, this is one of the neighborhood organizations we have been close to. There was an old lady at the, at the meeting whose name was Gertrude Snodgrass. And she uh, stood up. She's a cantankerous kind of person goes to all the meetings, cantankerous type. She stood up and said, If we control the hospital, why is it so many people are sick around here? And as the discussion developed, people agreed that it sure wasn't clear to them that people in that neighborhood were healthier now that they had gained control of the hospital. So they talked it over and they concluded that probably it was that it was a bad hospital. if you had a good hospital, the people would be healthy. And that's when they turned to us, Uh, they said, since we're from university, we understand systems, right? They said to us, well, why don't you go in there, McKnight, and do a study find out what's wrong in that hospital? Why, Why is it we're not healthy? Maybe serving us, but they aren't serving us right. McKnight, as
0: he was instructed, set up a study. He and his colleagues examined the records of the hospital's emergency department and made a list of the seven most common reasons for admission. They were, in order, car accidents, assaults, other accidents, chest problems, alcohol, drugs, medical and recreational, and dog
1: bites. So we go back to the Health Task Force and we show them this list. And they look at the list and uh, uh, Gertrude Snodgrass looks at the list and says, Them ain't diseases, that's community problems. It was stark when you saw it. Here, this hospital is full of people where it has not any capacity to deal with the problems that brought them there. And this is what became clear to all of us at that meeting under the guidance of Professor Snodgrass. Not me. So they really began to see that It was community, not institution, that was going to be the source of their health.
0: In this light, the neighborhood organization decided to take on some of the problems John McKnight's study had turned up. They began with the last item on the list, dog bites. These were caused by packs of dogs running wild in the neighborhood, dogs that people had acquired as protection and then
1: abandoned. Instead of saying, we'll march on City Hall and put the pressure on the dog catcher to come out and catch the dogs, they didn't do that. They had an idea about building their own community's capacity. And so what they did was they had a Dog Saturday in which they distributed pamphlets, the neighborhood organization, to all its block clubs in about a mile square area and said, next Saturday, if you know where a wild dog is, or a pack of wild dogs, then you'll call our office and tell us, we'll come out and get the dog, or dogs, and we'll pay you $5. A bounty for each dog. So, lo and behold, what happened that Saturday was that a bunch of kids learned that if you could identify a dog, you could get $5. And so that day, kids were out all over the neighborhood in bicycles, locating these dogs. and then. They'd get their parents or the people who live in the house to call in, and they organization go out and catch the dogs, and take the dogs, and they turn them into the dog catcher, but they caught them. And so they, they created the first urban cowboys in that day, who went up and rounded up these old dogies, and got kids involved in building their community, in becoming responsible, in knowing what, what, what health was really about, not about get your shots but a different understanding.
0: Following their success with the dogs, the members of the neighborhood organization subsequently took on a number of other problems in the same way. For example, instead of simply demanding that the city do something about traffic accidents, they first found out where and why accidents were occurring. They could then demand that these problems be fixed, as they did, on the basis of authoritative local knowledge. They also inquired into bronchial problems, another item on the list, and discovered that nutrition might be a factor. This led to the building of a rooftop greenhouse to grow vegetables locally. The story goes on, but it began from the recognition that health is a political question and depends more on vibrant communities than it does on the availability of medical services. John McKnight believes that a new politics is taking shape in the communities where he has been involved, like the neighborhoods on the west side of Chicago. He thinks that people are becoming aware in their bones that hospitals cannot simply produce health, nor schools, education, nor police department, safety. Experience has taught them, he says, that communities can only regenerate from within.
1: The institutional incapacity is resulting in a new kind of movement that we have been observing, connecting with, trying to convene, trying to understand that says, we now do understand that it doesn't make much difference who is the superintendent of schools in Chicago Doesn't make much difference by gender or race, because we've tried them in all colors and in all genders. And the disaster continues at the local school. Therefore, we better take back the control from these big systems and the professionals who run them. So one sees all over beginning efforts by people at the local level, not to march on downtown and say, you better deliver good educational police services, but to say, we want control over the local police. We want control over the local schools. We want to redefine the welfare system so that we bring it back home. In the spirit of bringing it back home, a coalition of
0: neighborhood groups on Chicago's west side have undertaken what they call the Wellness Initiative a term intended to emphasize the community's gifts rather than its deficiencies. John McKnight introduced me to some of the people who were involved while I was in Chicago to interview him, and they allowed me to sit in on one of their meetings. Afterwards, I talked with Jackie Reed of the West Side Health Authority, who had chaired the meeting, and she told me how she thinks the attitudes of local community groups are changing.
2: In the past, you know, They have used what I would call anger organizing, organizing around issues. Let's fight crime, let's fight drugs, let's fight gangs. The problem is once the anger dissipates, then what? This project deals with community building on strengths. And instead of using anger, we really try to embody a lot of the principles of love, of caring for each other, of sharing with each other, just putting your light on and letting your light shine. I think people are pretty tired. And I think people have seen things not work and are tired of seeing things not working. I think that, particularly in the African-American community, we have had a tendency to depend upon what other people said about us, what other people thought about us, and what their recommendations or solutions were for us and the money comes and we basically buy into their recommendations so that we can somehow justify our positions in various organizations. But I think by and large, we've seen so much continue to happen, so much deterioration continue to happen, despite all the big bucks out here, the continued proliferation of drugs and crime and and problems. So I think that people want something different to happen, and I think that this is a concept, as we've talked to the churches, no matter where we've talked, you know, did a talk over with a big meeting with the governor's wife and uh, civic leaders and what have you, and everybody basically says that this is the way to go.
0: The approach that Jackie Reed and her co-workers have taken involves a patient effort to reclaim public space expand local economies, and connect local capacities with local needs. The week before I was there, some of the participants in the wellness initiative had received national publicity for an action in which they had displaced drug dealers from their normal places of business by setting up stands selling snow cones and lemonade on those corners. Another project aims to restore life to the local streets by reviving walking in the neighborhood. The important thing according to Jackie Reed, is that the community must once again come first.
2: What we have to do is to look at life in situations, not so much in terms of problems, but look at them in terms of opportunities. If people are not working on a job that is provided by a major corporation, or manufacturing corporation, then it is a good time to do things in the neighborhood. It provides some time for you to use your skills to rebuild the community. Let's get the parkways clean. Let's get the graffiti off the walls. Let's contribute something to somebody else in our community. In the process of doing that, you know, getting people out of the houses, people end up getting jobs anyway. It's been my experience. I can't keep volunteers at the Westside Health Authority's office because Michael came in as a volunteer. Uh, he heard about the wellness project and he said that you know he'd be willing to plant grass seeds on the uh, 5400 block of West Van Buren for all of his neighbors. We had a good time with it and. Uh, and this was in January and we had some meetings and Michael basically was a, was driving people back and forth. So he was a great volunteer. He was transporting senior citizens to our meetings and before long Michael had gotten a job, one of the seniors had gotten him a job, knew somebody at Goldblatt who had gotten him a job. So a lot of what happens when people get involved with other people and as people get to know their neighbors and trust their neighbors, their neighbors help them get jobs. When the major stores leave like the Buddy Bears and the Jewels, which are the chain, chain stores uh, have left our communities. It's an opportunity for the Ma pot to open back up, that little grocery store. And uh, so these are the ways. And so people who are working in the community can buy from people in the community who are doing their little enterprises. And that is what you know we hope. I think we can do that when we can organize people to trust each other, to respect each other, and to support each other.
0: So you're saying that this process You call it wellness or regeneration. Right. It feeds itself
2: like a fire. That is exactly right. It will be the pooling together of resources, those who have money, those who have skills, that will basically rebuild our community. And I think that that is the legacy of the African-American experience in this country. Somehow we lost that, I think, with... uh, the expansion of a social welfare state. But I'm from the South, I'm from Mississippi, and I know that our survival growing up depended upon our neighbors. So that when our neighbors went fishing, we all ate fish. When my father butchered a hog, everybody ate pork. And it was, it's a collective sharing of resources. And the only, I can only see the only way that is being remembered now and carried out by and large is in the African-American church. It's amazing if you see the church. You know, if you go in these church buildings, they have brand new everything in the church building. And they'll build a brand new church from scratch. And it'll be the only new building in that block. And I find that fascinating because you'll see all women st- sitting outside of an expressway selling peanuts off the ramp, the off and on ramps of expressway selling peanuts for that church and they 'll have a barbecue dinner one Saturday out of a month for that church and you know one lady I know I bought tickets from her she raised eleven thousand dollars at a fashion show and dinner she called it an international dinner, but it was for her church, and she loves to fundraise she likes to do that for her church. And the church has been the only place where people have had an opportunity to give, to develop their gifts, to, 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 to do that. And so when people make a commitment to make a difference in their community or in their church, they can do it. And that's, that, that will be the thing that will basically, I think, turn our neighborhoods around.
0: Local organizing efforts like the Wellness Initiative reflect a political mood which extends throughout the city of Chicago. Its foundation, as John McKnight has already stressed, is a thoroughgoing disillusionment with the dominant institutions. And it has already resulted in a surprisingly successful campaign to radically decentralize control of education.
1: An almost impromptu but Tremendously powerful movement (laughs) erupted in Chicago, and the community organization and association leaders came together and said, we want to write a law that will take, and we'll go down to the state capitol, because the state has the power of education, and see if we can persuade the, the Illinois legislature to pass a law taking away from our school system and our central board of education and our superintendent." about 90% of its powers, and recreating our power as citizens over our schools and writing a law that says each school will elect its own board members and hire its own principals and its own teachers. And in what now seems almost miraculous, the state legislature passed such a law and the wheel has turned <laughs> completely because we now have some 480 elected boards of education in the city of Chicago with the power to decide how the budget will be expended, to hire and fire the principals, and soon, I think, to have the same power over the teachers. And the, out of the local citizens choosing their representatives, They now, once again, have recaptured within citizen space the institution that they lost.
0: In John McKnight's view, the movement that won local control of Chicago schools is also ready to reinvent community in other ways. But there are still formidable barriers between local initiatives and the public resources which would allow them to be realized. One such barrier is bureaucratic. The awakened energies of the community are often dissipated in a maze of government regulations. Or resources are tied up in social programs which deliver services to people whose real need is income. The extent of this problem was revealed when colleagues of McKnight's at Northwestern's Institute for Urban Affairs did a study of what actually happens to monies appropriated for the poor in Illinois' Cook County, which includes Chicago.
1: We reviewed the federal budgets and the state budgets and the county budgets, identifying all programs that were for low-income people. And we added up the dollar value of all of those programs. And then we took the number of people who fell beneath the poverty line, the government's official poverty line, So we now had all the money that was available for people in poverty and the number of people who were in poverty. So we divided the money (laughs) by the number of people and came out with a figure of $6,300 for every man, woman, and child in Cook County who was beneath the poverty line. That would mean, let's say, for a mother who had uh, two children about uh, $19,000, which for a family of three at that time was almost at the median income. And $19,000, not that. That mother would not be poor at $19,000. However, we then did a study as to how the money was expended, that is, who got the money at the end point. And there the answer was that 37% of the money went to poor people as income. And 63% went to people and organizations that were serving them. But had you distributed to every low-income person their share of the money designated for low-income people, there would have been no low-income people in Chicago in 1984. None. But we legislated poverty we said your principal problem as we understand it is you are poor so what we are going to do is appropriate enough money to make you unpoor and then give two-thirds of it to service providers and give one-third of it to you now you are a mother with two children getting eight thousand dollars a year and what it is is a major funding system for service institutions at the expense of adequate income for the poor. The way out of this bind,
0: McKnight believes, is to give individuals and communities discretion over the public monies available to them. Let them generate economies rather than building compulsory service economies on their backs. Governments function best, he says, when they transfer resources that enable people to act on their own
1: behalf. The best example is the GI Bill of Rights, where what the government did was took its resources and said to individuals we're going to give you a piece of paper <laughs> and this piece of paper if you give it to any college or trade school or university they'll take it and they'll, they'll educate you and uh, here's another piece of paper that will allow anybody who wants to build you a house to build you a house if you have only five hundred dollars to pay for it and." you tell that person when they get the piece of paper that if you don't make good on the rest of the loan, we'll pay it, Us, the government. This is the GI Bill. And so it was a hugely successful system of equalization and opportunity because it didn't create a separate system. It didn't say, we're going to have... Housing for veterans and we're going to set up a federal veterans housing administration and a state veterans housing administration And a city veterans housing administration and pass the money down to the three and we'll have monitors and evaluators and consultants and a whole bunch of people who are either in the government or working for the government that will Check to make sure that this special system for you works But that's what we've done now in latter days for people that we call poor, but we never did that for people we valued. What we did for people we valued was, we made them valuable to the educational and housing industries in the society. We didn't create any bureaucracy at all of any significance.
0: John McKnight's opinion that social policy should enable individuals and communities to attain their own ends in their own ways, just as the GI Bill enabled veterans to get an education without specifying how or where they should do it. What frequently happens instead, he feels, is that systems of social service replace the community rather than fostering it. The citizens are then forced to participate on the system's terms as so-called volunteers or on sham advisory councils. Eventually, the very idea that there was once a different way of doing things begins to seem fanciful, perhaps nothing more than a romantic rumor. Today, circumstances are throwing communities back on their own resources, making them, as McKnight said earlier, reinvent themselves. He offers no blueprint for this rebuilding and believes none is required. His aim has been to clear away the obstacles so that communities can express the vitality he believes they inherently possess. What will happen then, he says, is something that can only be discovered
1: on the way. I have seen my life as a continuing journey with people who act as citizens in a place at a time. And you come to recognize in some profound way that this is all about something in particular and hardly ever about anything in general. I know some places and some people and some groups who believe this thing is possible. Whether or not that vision will become prevalent or manifest I don't know, but I have been around efforts at change by citizens and communities long enough now that I have seen over and over again ventures that I thought didn't have a chance at all (laughs) come to be the way. I saw a group of straggly-haired young people stop a war. I saw a group of the. defeated, degraded public housing residents rise up and throw the managers out and say, this is our home, we will take this over and we will run it and we will come to own it. And I've seen a group of neighborhood people come to understand that they had the tools and power to control their health and that the hospital was a great illusion as a health source. So. My life has been blessed with a continuing set of surprises. And those surprises have almost always been the result of a group of citizens in association who had a vision and made it come true. And you know, the other thing if you've been in community organizing for a long time is that in, in the end, It isn't the neighborhood as a place that is the measure. In the end, the measure is what happened in the lives of people when they acted together as citizens. And what did that mean to them in terms of satisfaction, purpose, meaning, and value. The value of having their gifts recognized. The value of seeing something more than their own self-interest, seeing the common good, the value of having their gifts shared, the value of believing that they are not alone and that they are not a victim, the value of seeing change, however small. That citizen experience, that experience in the lives of the people I've known over the years, is, I think, the greatest jewel in life's crown.
0: On Ideas, you've been listening to Part 2 of Community and its Counterfeits, a profile of John McKnight. John McKnight directs the program in community studies at Northwestern University's Institute for Urban Affairs. The series concludes next week at this time with a program about rebuilding hospitable communities where people who have been excluded can be made welcome again. Technical production of tonight's program by Lorne Tulk, Production assistants Gail Brownell and Liz Nodge. You can get a printed transcript of tonight's program for $7 plus GST or the entire three-part series for $18 plus GST. To order your copy now, phone this toll-free number, 1-800-363-1530. Again, that's 1-800-363-1530 or you can send a check or money order to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm David Cayley. Between the Covers continues their spirit theme this week. Tonight's story, Palo by Donna Caruso, is a memory piece about a beloved grandmother and a miraculous moment. Between the covers, following the 10 o'clock news.